rumblings in the LNG market could see natural gas prices double. Gold dips and looks set to go lower. And China pursues the tech war with gusto. But its recent announcement of export controls for semiconductors has had some unintentional consequences. I'm Shay Russell and welcome to Cocktails and Commodities, the resource podcast where macro analysis meets mining insights. Don't forget to give this podcast a like and please remember all information is general in nature and not financial advice. Let's get on with it. Gold can't catch a bid this week, falling to a one-month low of 1,910 US dollars per ounce. US CPI data grew by 0.2% in July, the same as June's, making it very unlikely that the Federal Reserve Bank will hike at the September Federal Open Markets Committee meeting. While I'm sure Fed central bankers are patting themselves on the back for wrestling the inflation genie back into the bottle, it's worth remembering the lid isn't on. Core inflation in the US is running at 4.7% annually. And this particular data set has been above 4% since September 2021. That's almost two years of elevated inflation in the US. The CME Fed watch tool suggests there's a 30% chance of a rate hike in November and currently predicts the Fed will begin to cut rates in March of 2024. While there is a near unanimous agreement that the Fed will not hike in September, economist Jim Rickards says the Fed will hike that month by 2.5%. So where to for gold in the meantime? With inflation abating, the US dollar picking up strength and no major changes to the geopolitical backdrop, gold will struggle to move higher. With gold at 1,913 US dollars per ounce right now, It's what happens below this price point that matters the most. Spot gold's price level of 1906 is important as it's the nearest form of technical support for the yellow metal. But a dip below the 1900s and nudging into the 1895 level can't be ruled out either. Any move higher from the yellow metal is likely to get snuffed out between 1925 and 1938. Sorry, gold bugs. UK and European natural gas prices have jumped 40% this week as the threat of Australian industrial action looms over the industry. Two oil companies, ASX-listed Woodside Petroleum and US-listed Chevron Corporation, are at risk of staff across three major Australian gas projects striking over a pay dispute. Combined, Woodside's Northwest Shelf offshore gas platform and Chevron's Gorgon, and Wheatstone LNG plant supply 11% of the LNG market globally. South Korea is the biggest buyer from the Northwest Shelf, and LNG from Chevron's Gorgon and Wheatstone plant mostly go to Japan. Europe buys tiny amounts of gas from Australia, but if the supply of these three gas projects are taken offline, Asian customers will be competing with European ones, placing additional pressure on both Europe and the UK which are already struggling to replace Russian gas supplies ahead of the Northern Hemisphere winter. One Citigroup analyst warned that a long-running strike would see the European and Asian January LNG contract double in price. Another analyst from a different firm warned not to jump at shadows as threats of the strike may have had more of an impact on the natural gas price now than an actual strike. European gas storage sits at a healthy 87.7%, and is on track to be full by the end of September, just in time before the October winter drawdown period begins. However, the natural gas markets are still twitchy nearly 18 months on from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
even though European storage should be full by winter, RBC Capital warns that with planned maintenance in Norway, set to take 1.5 billion cubic metres of gas production offline over August, which will be followed by another 2.5 billion cubic metres in September, a workers' strike across three projects in the southern part of the globe will lead to itchy trigger fingers among energy traders. Commodity prices rallied last month after China pledged support for its property sector, or so wrote one financial newspaper. The problem is the Chinese government has done nothing of the sort for the property sector. The July Politburo meeting admitted the property sector did need support, but the Chinese Communist Party hasn't provided any clear indication this will happen. So far, the Middle Kingdom has only introduced policies that will spur local consumption. Incentives vary from province to province, but these plans only encourage spending locally, on things such as electrical appliances and furniture. Three provinces have plans to increase manufacturing of small consumer goods, a couple more provinces will somehow expand the use of electric cars, and several more plan to hold and promote food festivals to encourage locals to spend within China. Rounding this out, there is a national plan to increase the availability of credit to small businesses and private companies. But that's it. The Nikkei Asia Review wrote this week that the bazooka-style stimulus we've seen in the past can be all but ruled out. And a report from Schroeder's backs this view, telling readers that there'll be no big bang from the Chinese Communist Party when it comes to stimulus. The constant chatter over the will they or won't they stimulate the economy conversation is distracting. Rather than jump at shadows over something that may never arise, Allow me instead to draw your attention to the US-China tech war. Nationalistic rhetoric from the US isn't new. It began with President Trump and President Biden's government is following suit with more targeted trade sanctions against China. In fact, we could argue that Biden's policies have more bite than Trump's bark. On October 7, 2022, the US government enacted a series of export controls aimed directly at China's artificial intelligence and semiconductor industry. These controls were designed to cripple China's future technological progress by cutting off China's access to advanced and almost exclusively American-designed computer chip hardware that powers AI. Come June 30 this year, both Japan and the Netherlands under pressure from the White House, no doubt, announced that it would restrict the sales of select chip-making equipment to China. The US, Japan and the Netherlands combined provide roughly 90% of all the equipment used in computer chip manufacturing. With all three now enforcing this policy, China is not only barred from buying computer chips, but it's barred from buying the equipment to make their own alternative chips. Essentially, the purpose of these export controls is to restrict and slow down China's AI progress, 5G rollout, and quantum computing. Aside from publicly criticizing the US and filing a lawsuit against the US with the World Trade Organization, China's response was fairly muted. There was some talk of around 1 trillion yuan to be deployed in China's semiconductor sector to prop it up, though it never materialised. Instead, just a few days after the Netherlands and Japan banned China from buying its equipment, China announced export controls on two obscure metals. Effective August 1, companies would need to obtain a licence to import gallium and germanium and their combined 14 related products. Gallium and germanium are widely used in advanced technology such as high-speed semiconductors, electronics, defence and some aspects of renewable energy. 
Given Chinese officials only gave 25 days notice of the change, it saw several companies begin to stockpile over the course of July. But it also caused these companies to start looking elsewhere to obtain the metals. Securing supplies outside China most likely pleases those in the White House. One of the unintended consequences of China's export control on these metals, however, is that both Russia and the Democratic Republic of Congo have said they intend to increase production of gallium and germanium to meet demand. These are probably not the trading partners the US had in mind. Another unexpected outcome was that this export ban drove up the price of a metal almost no one knows about, and it might signal good fortune is ahead for one Australian explorer. Among the 14 products now facing export controls is something called indium gallium arsenide. Germanium is found with zinc ores and gallium is found with both zinc and bauxite ores. Demand for these two metals is expected to increase in the coming years due to the growth of the semiconductor industry, the 5G rollout, artificial intelligence, quantum computing and renewable energy. Like many minerals, it's not that gallium and germanium are rare. It's that China dominates their processing ability, but we'll dive into their mineralogy and economic prospects another day. Moving to indium, gallium and arsenide, however, is an interesting one. As I noted in a podcast released on August 9, the indium price has run higher and I wasn't quite able to put my finger on why. With a bit of digging and the subsequent 39% jump higher over the course of July, indium has been inadvertently caught up in China's latest export controls. And this little-known metal may present a compelling investment case for investors if they know where to look. First, though, what even is indium gallium arsenide? Simply put, it's a semiconductor comprised of indium, gallium, and arsenic, and it is used in high-power and high-frequency electronics because of its superior electron velocity compared to silicon gallium arsenic semiconductors. Indium gallium arsenide is also the material of choice in optical fiber communications as this combination offers the lowest loss of communication signal strength over distances. This semiconductor is only a small percentage of the end use for indium, as most of the metal is found in alloys and virtually every touchscreen device contains it. Indium tin oxide makes an excellent transparent conductor. A micron thin coating of indium tin oxide transforms incoming electrical data into optical form. Indium is increasingly being used in cancer treatment, dentures, photovoltaic cells, but its economic fortunes are closely tied to smartphone usage across the growing middle class in China and India. Geologically, indium is more abundant than silver in the Earth's crust, but indium is found primarily in zinc deposits, followed by lead, and trace elements of indium can also be found in iron and copper ores. Even though Australia has the largest zinc resources in the world, China is the dominant producer and refiner of indium, controlling more than 70% of the nearly pure refined indium market. South Korea and Canada also produce and refine indium, though they are a distant second and third respectively. And way behind, we have France as the fourth largest refiner of indium. Japan doesn't produce any newly refined indium, but it is the world's largest recycler of the metal. In spite of this concentration of production, the world isn't actually short of indium. Rather, like almost all obscure metals, it lacks a diverse geographic processing capability. Few smelters are equipped to extract indium. Because of this, it's estimated that only a quarter of all indium mined is actually refined, 
meaning that a lot of today's indium ends up as tailings waste. More to the point, indium's availability is closely tied to zinc mining. An increase in indium prices is not going to see any meaningful surge in indium production, though a significant price jump would likely lead to a reassessment of the tailings and waste rock. Which puts us in a pickle as the US, UK, Europe and Australia all consider indium a critical metal. Often the economic concentration of indium is so small, few miners even disclose there is indium in the ore. This is something that helps the newly listed Iltani resources stand out. The company's Herberton project in far north Queensland, comprised of three smaller projects, all of which contain indium. One in particular, the Isabel project, is considered to host Australia's highest grade indium deposit. Given Isabel was last drilled in the 1970s, I suspect modern exploration of this site could yield some remarkable results and maybe even increase the known mineralization of critical minerals here. China's export controls on these thinly traded metals may have spooked some pockets of the market, but already the US trade restrictions appear to have the desired impact on forcing companies to seek alternative supply. Eltani, and no doubt several other Australian explorers, will benefit as companies are forced to find materials from diverse locations. That's all for today's episode of Cocktails and Commodities. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an update on what rocks are making news, which commodities are moving markets, and the company's trying to get it out of the ground.